Because We Make, the podcast about making, creativity, and why we do what we do as makers and creatives. I'm your host, Vincent Ferrari, and I am flying solo. Well, not exactly, but Ethan and I had a bit of a scheduling conflict this week, so we couldn't record a new episode. But that doesn't mean you don't get some content from us. That's how much we love you, the audience. So... I was on the Invictus Mind podcast last week, got to talk to my good friend Michael Corbell, and we talked about um, my cancer treatment, what it means to be Invictus, what the human spirit really means, what economic liberty means, all that good stuff. It's a really good talk, and I figured, since we didn't have anything as far as because we make, we would share that with you this week, so you still had something to listen to, so you still got your fill of us. You can enjoy all my dulcet tones without us even recording an episode this week. Aren't you lucky? I'm kidding. I'm kidding. But we will be back next week. We have everything lined up. We are back to normal. But in the meantime, enjoy the episode. Enjoy the interview. And I'll have links for Michael's shows in the show notes. Thanks, everybody. The Invictus Mind, Episode 9. Hello. This is Mike Corbell. Each and every person is a sovereign individual, born with a spark of divinity, with unique and unlimited potential. But every one of us will face unique challenges, obstacles, or roadblocks. There are systems in this world that may be built against our own best interests. Governments use force to coerce and compel us. Sometimes we build systems in our very own head. In each episode, we will look at these systems, these roadblocks, the things that prevent us from reaching our true potential. We will discuss how to break free and regain our sovereignty, how we can become the master of our fate and the captain of our soul. Welcome to another episode of The Invictus Mind. I've been really happy with the feedback I've been getting for this podcast, so thank you very much. I know I've already had some great guests on, but we have some more tremendous people coming on in the near future. Before I get into that, I wanted to let everyone know about a great book list I prepared for you listeners. On every episode, if there is a book mentioned, I will add them to my website. You can just go to theinvictusmind.com and check them out. We've already featured great books like Human Action by Ludwig von Mises, 177 Mental Toughness Secrets of the World Class by Stephen Siebold. Of course, there's Fool's Errand, Time to End a War in Afghanistan by Scott Horton, and the Constitution Owner's Manual written by none other than Mike Meharry. I also include on my website the Tuttle Twins series written by Connor Boyack. I love this set. I have one for my daughter. It's a great kid's version of the illustrated copies of some of the best respected authors like Mises and Hayek and Leonard Reed. Your children will certainly understand the topics because they can relate to the characters. All these books can be purchased through Amazon. Of course, I'm gonna get income for them. I am an entrepreneur, but that's the best way you can support the show right now. My next guest on the podcast is one of those people this show was really made for. He has an amazing story of one who really is Invictus. He's the host of the podcast Because We Make, the owner of a small business in handmade jewelry and woodworking, but most importantly, a man who, despite all obstacles in his life, decided he would never quit making himself free. Telling his story today is Vincent Ferrari. Vincent, I uh, appreciate you coming on the show with me today. Uh, when I was putting this, this podcast together, The Invictus Mind, you're the kind of person I thought of exactly. Oh, thank you. And, and I want to give you a chance to tell your story, but I want to first let you know uh, that I, I appreciate this conversation and the fact that we found each other in the winner's list for Jason Stapleton's show. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's a it's a nice list to be on. It's a, it's kind of cool to have a group of people around you. As someone said in one of the, in his the training he did today, it's nice to have a group of people that don't think you're crazy, <laughs> you know. And it's like that that group of people. Some of those people have really become some of my closest friends, which is which is really pretty cool. You know, you go from not knowing anybody and having one thing in common, which is a podcast we all listen to, to like, oh yeah, we have a lot in common. Actually, it's kind of cool. Right on. Kind of cool. How long have you been listening to Jason Stapleton for? 
Uh, I'm pretty. It was very close to when he got started because initially, I remember he was doing um, when he first got started. He was doing ads on Dave Smith's podcast. And I kept hearing Dave Smith doing the ads for this guy. He goes, ah, if you love Liberty, you'll love this guy, Jason Stapleton. And I'm like, all right, at some point I got to check this guy out because if Dave likes him, you know, I'm going to like him. And sure enough, I listened to the first episode. That was when he was doing five a week and I was hooked. Like that was my morning commute listening every single morning. I looked forward to it. I would rearrange my podcast list in the morning so that when I got in the car, his was the first thing I was listening to. And then everything else, whether it was half finished or not, would be on after him. I had to listen to him first thing in the morning, every morning. So yeah, it's been a long time actually. Yeah. I think I've been listening to about three years myself, but that that's pretty cool. Yeah. He's, he's a, he's a, he's one of the good guys, like legitimately one of the good guys. You know, he knows his stuff. He's great to talk to. He's the, literally one of the nicest people I think I've ever met. And I was so intimidated meeting him. And it's just like, oh, yeah, no, he's just a nice guy. And I know he'd hate me saying that, but he really is just a nice guy. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, I've never really been starstruck by a lot of people until I started doing this podcast. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you you just had Scott Horton on, for God's sake. I mean, that's just like, I mean, I'm following Scott Horton. That's a tough act to follow. <laughs> Man, that was a very easy interview. That guy's really cool and so full of knowledge. So it's, we could just keep going. You know, I had like 10 minutes of talk time, but that guy is so interesting <laughs> to talk to. I'm, I'm impressed that you got 10 minutes in because Scott's a talker. <laughs> right but that's that's what happens. You know, smart people like him, they get going on a conversation and they could just get on a tear and just go and go and go. And I always admired that about people like him that, you know, there's just so much knowledge that there's no stopping his flow of knowledge once he gets it started. It's just amazing to watch. Hmm. You know, I don't always 100% agree with him, but I always respect the amount of knowledge that he has behind his opinions. You know what I mean? Yeah, I don't think you should agree with everybody 100% anyway, so. Yeah, it's, that's deadly. That's deadly, right? Like, I, I, I can count on one hand, actually, the number of people I agree with 100% of the time, so. <laughs> Not even your wife, I bet. No, no, no. I, no. I, you, you know what? Next year, next year we'll be married twenty years. So you know, in twenty years, you you're going to come up with a few here and there. You know, one or two disagreements. Well, over congrats on that. Yeah. So Vincent, uh, you know, I gotta I gotta tell you because you know I, I have had Mike Meharry on, I had Scott Horton on, and when I first started this podcast, my intention wasn't to draw in a libertarian audience, although that's a hard part of my philosophy and my and my very being. Mm-hmm. But I, I've had this name Invictus that I've kind of carried around with me for the last five years. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the poem Invictus. Are you? I'm, I'm not familiar with the poem. And, and I'm embarrassed to admit that when I got your prep sheet, you know, one of the questions on there, I had to actually look up to make sure I had the definition of the word Invictus correct. So I apologize for not being as well informed as I should be. But I did have to look it up. So I made sure I understood what it were, what it meant. And ironically, Vincent is Latin for conqueror. So there you go. So I'm in the same family. <laughs> so yeah, the unconquerable conqueror. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, it's 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 funny because I do love the name, you know the the idea of an an unconquerable mind is just great because I think that's what makes the liberty movement so awesome, you know. Whereas other movements believe that we are kind of the product of everything around us, and you know if the government doesn't do it for us, we're going to fall apart, and if we don't get help from this person, we're going to fall apart. And, you know, the, the liberty movement is more of a, no, we are just, the human spirit is unconquerable, period. And we base everything on that. And it's an, it's an amazing belief in people when you believe that human beings as a, you know, as a race are unconquerable. Even the weakest among us has an unconquerable spirit. They may feel defeated. They may be broken, but they're not defeatable. And that's fantastic. Like, what a great way to look at the world. Like, no, you are so strong. You can't be destroyed. You can only destroy yourself. And, oh, it's just, I love it. That's what, that's what drew me to the liberty movement, the individualism. I love that so much. So, 
well, yeah, that's you. why I love I, I love the name. I absolutely love the name because it really does embody everything I love about the liberty movement in the name. So it's great. I, I appreciate that. I'm going to have to hire you to write some sales copy for me then. <laughs> <laughs> I have been known to write a few words here and there. <laughs> there you go. Vincent, um, I'm amazed by the story. I, I got to know you obviously through the winner's list. Uh, mm-hmm. The private secret organization. So for those listening, you have to find out how to get in. <laughs> it's but, a cult, and I have. I'm holding up right now my cup of Hawaiian punch, which generally resembles Kool Aid. So, <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, since we're in the secret hidden club, I'll call it that. But um, I, I've learned a lot about you, you know, and, and I can tell just from the start of this conversation that you and I are, are very much uh, similar, which I think is really cool. Definitely, definitely. But I want to hear more about your story just for a brief few minutes because uh, I have not been able to experience anything like you have. Uh, you know, I've had my rough times, rough patches in life, but uh, you uh, you had a life-threatening condition. And yeah. your story when you were on Jason Stapleton's show was, was very uplifting and inspiring. And uh, that, that just culminates what, uh, what having the Invictus Unconquerable spirit really is all about. It's about not just liberty, but freeing yourself from worry and, and fear and, and overcoming the challenges in life, especially one, one that could potentially put you on your deathbed. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. I read um, right after I was – like at the tail end of everything. I forgot where I read it, but there was – you know how everybody puts like quotes and images and memes and stuff? Mm-hmm. And one of them, one of them was like, one of them really, really hit me. And it said, you'd never know how strong you are until you have no other choice but to be strong. And I never considered myself like a strong person. But in hindsight, looking back at what I've been through the last, you know, year, year and a half, it's like, I can't, if you had told me at the beginning, I would have dealt with it the way I did. I would have been like, no way I'm going to die. I literally just thought I would die. Like. And you just you, – when your back is against the wall and all you can do is fight, you you do what you can. You know, you just refuse to give in and you refuse to let it get you. And I never wanted – I never wanted cancer to get me. That was my mission, to just not let it get me. I didn't want my life to be over that way. So right. – You had esophageal gel cancer. Is that how you pronounce it? Yeah, so I had esophageal cancer. I had what they were calling stage – they were calling it 2.5. So it wasn't really 2. It wasn't really 3. So basically the difference is with um, stage 2.5 as I had it, it was metastasizing. It was growing. It was getting worse. And it hadn't punctured the lining of my esophagus and the muscle of my throat. Um, it had started to, but it hadn't made its way through. Had it made its way through, it would have been stage three, potentially even stage four. So it was – the diagnosis was scary and they told me basically that it was treatable and I was very lucky to have a, a type – I had an adenocarcinoma, which is very, very treatable and I was really – really fortunate because there's other kinds of esophageal cancer. There's other kinds. There's, um, diff- I think it's called squamous cell um, carcinoma, which is not as treatable. And I just happened to be lucky enough to get <laughs> lucky enough, but I just happened to be lucky enough to get the right kind that, you know, it was treatable. And I did manage to, I did manage to get really good treatment from really competent doctors. So I'm kind of lucky that way. Yeah, I mean, I suppose I can say I've been blessed because nobody in my immediate family has come down with cancer, but I, I have known uh, very good friends who've had it. It's it's terrifying because most the average person hears cancer and they think of cancer like you do in you know the 80s, where cancer sounds like a death sentence. And then you know, even when my doctors told me that, he goes, "Oh, no problem." He goes, "Before we do the surgery to to, to cut this out, we're gonna do." Uh, we are going to do surgery. We're going to do chemo and radiation. And I panicked and I'm like, chemo is going to kill me. He goes, why do you think chemo is going to kill you? I said, because it kills everybody. It just destroys you. He goes, no, no, no. You're thinking of chemo in like the 1980s. He goes, chemo isn't like that anymore. And I believed him, even though it sounded like that's impossible. Like there's no way chemo is really, really. No, he was mostly right. I mean, I had some side effects, but for the most part, he was right, except for severe exhaustion. And I'm telling you, it's a level of tired you can't comprehend. It's you wake up in the morning and you're already ready to go back to bed like that, that kind of tired. Mm -hmm. Um, And I worked through it. 
Um, I went through six weeks of chemo and radiation before surgery and then another three months of chemo afterwards. And I was doing, uh, I worked the whole time. I was working half days, but I was working. And what's funny is right before surgery, I was not only working my day job, but I was also trying to grow my own business while I'm going through chemo and radiation. Everyone's like, what are you doing? Can't you just rest? I'm like, no, I can't. Because if I rest, I'm going to start thinking about what's going on. <laughs> I, I bet that having your mind occupied with things of the world and uh, in, in your own principles kept you going when you had cancer. Because if, if you would just sit around and dwell on it, it could put a lot of bad thoughts in your head. You, you, you go to some weird places. Um, you don't, I don't think I ever really gave serious thoughts to my mortality, but like every once in a while, it would be like, you could die from this, you know? And I think the, the one time it really, really, really hit me that it could be over was the, the morning of my surgery, March, March 1st. I was, um, I had just been prepped. I had, I was sitting there and I was starting to feel the nerves starting to come on because I knew what was about to happen was going to change my life forever because they were going to take out my esophagus. And if you, you know, just think about that, everybody listening to this, just think about that for one second. They were going to take out my esophagus, not, not like shorten it, not that it's coming out. There's not going to be a tube from the top of my from where my mouth is to my stomach. My stomach is going to be up behind my lungs. I mean, it's just terrifying stuff. And I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, you know, this is complicated. I could die. I, it was the first time I had a legit feeling like I could die. And I remember I went, they, they led me to the OR and I walked to the OR, which I was quite proud of myself for. I was like, I wasn't, I didn't have to get wheeled in. You know, I'm a manly man. I'm going to get, I'm going to walk there on my own. I get into the OR and I'm sitting there and they're trying to do the um, – they're trying to do that, that – the spine injection. I forgot what it's called. The one that they give pregnant women um, the, to numb you and they couldn't get it into my spine correctly. Uh, the epidural. They were trying to give me an epidural and it, it wasn't working because they couldn't get the needle into the discs of my – they couldn't get the needle to the nerves of my spine. So it was just like, oh, we're just going to have to go without it. And I'm like, oh, man. <laughs> it's like that's not what you want to hear. I want to be as numb as possible. I want to be out. Mm -hmm. And I remember they said, OK, we're going to lay you down on the table and we're going to get started. And, and they put the um, they put the injection in and I looked up at the lights and I just said, I said, I'm not ready yet. Don't take me yet. I have a lot to do. That's what I said. I was bargaining with God on the operating table. And eight and a half hours or nine hours later, I woke up in recovery, just awake and tubes coming out of me and the rest is kind of history. But it was the first time when I was on the operating room table, I was like, I could die right now. Like I may not make it through this. And, you know, I, I was scared. I was scared to death, but then I woke up and I was like, okay, I made it, you know, as bad as it's going to be as torturous as it feels right now, I'm going to be okay. And 10 days later, I walked out of the hospital. Yeah. I mean, that's amazing. I, I, I it, it was it was an incredible experience. I mean, it it made me realize that I had more to me than I gave myself credit for, mm -hmm. you know. And that's that that was probably the best part of the whole thing was you you go through all that you don't know what you're made of until you face some serious adversity, and that was the most adversity I'd ever faced in my life. I mean, I lost my dad, and I've had my share of bad things happen to me in my life, but nothing like this, you know, this was, this was, this was some next level stuff. This was life or death. And, right. you know, then to wake up and find out, yeah, we didn't take it all. So you could have an easier life. So we're going to do some more chemo after you're done. And I'm like, wait, more chemo. I just went through this. So I didn't have to do this anymore. You're going to do more chemo. Hmm. And it was another, you know, I started chemo again in May and I went for May, well, in June rather. So June, July, August, and I stopped chemo in September. It's just, it's just an ongoing thing. It just never ended. And finally it's over. Like I finally feel like I can breathe. Like uh, February 18th, the chemo port is coming out. It's finally, finally, finally over, you know, and it's just such a relief to be done with it. Now I just have to adapt to all the changes that have been made to me since then, you know? So let me ask you this, because mm -hmm. you, you asked uh, a while ago to imagine what it was like to not have an esophagus. 
Mm-hmm. And I know a lot of people that I'm sure that there's a reason why we have it. I, I can't imagine <laughs> what it's like to, to just have food go from your mouth to your stomach. Can you feel a difference in eating now? Or? So, yeah. So it's kind of – it's a weird feeling because you're very aware of how much you've eaten. And I am very aware of what I've eaten. Like I look at portion sizes. I used to – I mean, okay. So I, I at one point at my heaviest was around 390 pounds. Um and as of this morning, I was 226. So just to give you an idea of how much weight this whole thing has, I wasn't 388 when the cancer started. I was probably about 340. So I've lost about 120 pounds in about a year and a half. So it's pretty nuts. That's a lot of weight to lose for any human being. And I, I can't believe I lost that much, but I'm, I'm like a new person from it. But one of the things that comes along with it is you start being really aware of portion size because I can't eat – like I could go to McDonald's and get a cheeseburger and like um, the fries that go in a Happy Meal. I cannot have anything bubbly anymore. I can't have like cola or seltzer or anything like that. I just can't. I can't drink it. If I take the slightest little sip of it, I'm full. Um, my stomach – where it's located, if I overeat, it presses on my lungs and I have trouble breathing. Like, and, and, you know, it's little things like that where, you know, sometimes you just forget. Like if I drink while I'm eating, I can't eat. I can't, ha- I have to drink after or before I can't drink during. So generally what I'll do is this cup, this actually, and I'm, this is what I had during dinner. It's almost full, mm-hmm. you know, and I'll end up drinking it over the rest of the night before I go to bed, just because I can't drink as much. You feel, you become so in tune with how the food feels going down because you got to be careful about how much you're putting in. I'm very fortunate because a lot of people that have the same cancer, they have an esophagectomy and the top of their stomach comes off. And if the top of your stomach comes off, that's a whole different ballgame because now without the top of your stomach, you have to sleep forever on a wedge pillow. You can never lay flat on your back. You can never sleep. If you're a stomach sleeper like I am, you can never sleep on your stomach ever again because you'll literally drown. Um, It's just all the complications. And Luckily, all the complications, well, all the things I had to deal with, I dealt with afterwards. So like sleeping on a wedge pillow and coming home and having to navigate the the drama of dealing with a feeding tube. I mean, I had a feeding tube in my stomach that I had to plug into every night and I had to run that thing for 16 hours so that I would have enough nutrition to survive because I couldn't eat. And it's all these things, all these things that, you know, I, when I first got home, I couldn't even have like yogurt. You know, I would eat, I would eat yogurt and a small yogurt would fill me up because everything was so swollen. And it's all this stuff that you take for granted. Like I used to just, I would eat a baconator with large fries and a large Coke, do it smiling and then go about my day. And now it's like, I eat a slice of toast and I'm full, like painfully full, trouble breathing, need a nap full. (laughs) Hmm. It's, you know, not having an esophagus is not fun. You know, you don't realize how much of your, another thing you don't realize is how much of your digestion happens in your esophagus. You know, it's a long trip down. And for me, there is, there's maybe, I have like three inches of esophagus now. So any food that goes in, if I don't chew the hell out of it, it just stacks up until my stomach lets it in. And it's just all this stuff that you never think about is now primary on your mind. It's crazy. It's absolutely crazy. Yeah, we take advantage of the bodily functions until they don't work, right? Yeah, it's you, that's exactly it. You don't you it's all the stuff you never thought about, you're now hyper aware of. You know, like I had I had a chest tube that was draining my chest cavity because that's where the surgery happens. And I still like right now as I'm doing this podcast, I am in so much pain right now. And I can feel like every nerve ending where that tube was hurts. And I know this is going to be months and months and months of this. And he warned me. He said it could be eight months to a year from your surgery. You're still going to be feeling, you know, all of that. And it's now we're coming up on a year and it's I'm still feeling it. And it's places that hurt that never hurt before. Stuff that you never thought about. All these little these little pains that you're like, is that from surgery or am I hurt? Or like you don't know. You don't know. You just hope that it goes away, and sometimes it doesn't. <laughs> hmm. It's crazy stuff. Yeah, that, that's that's really an amazing story. You know, uh, 
I was thinking, and this is not a plug for my day job by any means of that, but uh, <laughs> I, I, I sell some life insurance from time to time to many of my clients. Mm-hmm. And I, I, like I said, I've known people in my life who've passed, passed away prematurely. I've known people when my mom passed away. And uh, I've never gone through a life-threatening experience. But you really – when I sit down with clients, sometimes they, they, they don't – a lot of people don't even realize how precious life really is. They don't. And they don't, they, don't, they don't appreciate that they should be taking care of their families. And, you know, if anything happens to the breadwinner or anything, that family could be devastated. And, yeah. you know – yeah, you don't you really don't think about any of it. You it's it's not I never thought of I never thought of like what could happen to me. Even when this started, you know, when I was in the diner on that night when it start when it really got bad to the point where I had started having trouble. It was just an annoyance. It was like, "Oh, this is just a complication." You know, I didn't know it was cancer. You know, and I didn't know, you know, I didn't know you could get this cancer from having untreated acid reflux. You know, I, I I didn't know any of that. I knew nothing. I just knew that I was having trouble eating and I thought I was going to get a hiatal hernia fixed when I went to my GI. And the next thing I know, he's like, yeah, we did a biopsy. You have a mass that's the largest I think I've ever seen. And I'm like, oh, here we go. I'm going to die. <laughs> you know? Now, did you do any research or have any interest in learning about cancer stuff before you discovered this? Or is it just something that never crossed your mind? It just never, it never, cancer happened to other people. You know, it's, that was, that was my mentality. It was not going to happen. I didn't think about it. I mean, obviously as a, as a man, you think of prostate cancer, but I didn't smoke. I barely drank. I mean, maybe one beer a month. I never drink. I still to this, I've stopped drinking since this. I don't drink at all anymore. You know, I didn't do drugs. I didn't have indiscriminate sex. I lived, except for my weight, I lived a life that, you know, the clean living folks would be jealous of. Like, and I did it just because it was the way I lived. And in a way, I was kind of lucky because I've never had a cholesterol problem. I've never had a blood sugar problem. I've never had a blood pressure problem. I've never had a heart problem. I've never had a lung problem, you know? So I guess in a way, all the stuff that I just kind of did ended up helping me out because it made recovery a lot easier. Once I got, once I was able to get up out of the hospital bed and start moving, my recovery went super fast. I finished physical therapy in two days because I was already doing things that it takes a week to do on the second day. And they were like, yeah, you don't need physical therapy anymore. You're, you're good. (laughs) It's like, that was it. So now did you, uh, did you go through the the cancer's treatment center of America or just your, your local hospital? Uh, my local hospital, it was uh, – they were referred to me. So the GI referred me to the thoracic surgeon that was going to do the surgery. And he said, you know what? Before we do the surgery, we're going to do the um, – we are going to do a round of chemo and radiation just to make sure everything's good. So that's that's what ended up happening. We They referred me to the hospital, which by – and this is <laughs> – you know, I, if you don't believe in God, every once in a while something comes along and goes, you should probably believe in God because we bought this house in 2012 and in 2017, the hospital five minutes that's walking distance from my house got one of the most advanced radiation machines you can put in a hospital. And I ended up needing it. And it's like, what are the chances that this small town of 20,000 people that I live in would have such an advanced cancer program at a small local hospital? Like, what are the chances? What are the chances? There is no chance, right? Statistically, there is no chance that this would happen. There's only, like I said, there's 20,000 people in this town. There's something like 500,000 people in my entire county. And we're not talking about a large area. And yet there is the most advanced treatment sitting right there next to me and it's waiting for me and it got me through this. Like if you don't believe in God, moments like that would definitely sway you. <laughs> you know, that's just too good to go, yeah, that's a coincidence. Yeah, I for one believe in miracles and so that that's that's a great yeah. story. Yeah, I do I I I don't know about miracles, but I do believe that things happen that just don't have rational explanations like you know you maybe can maybe you could come up with something but that's just too much of a coincidence to go i'm just thankful like that's all it is i'm just thankful for that i was asking about the cancer research uh, center from america because i believe that that organization is run by a bunch of libertarians 
Ah. And uh, and I started really exploring this. Uh, not that I want to study cancer. I hope that I get it for God's sakes. But um, I ran into this. Um, are you familiar with the author G. Uh, Edward Griffin's? No, I am not. I'm sorry. Okay, so he's a libertarian author, and he wrote a great book uh, called The Creature of Jekyll Island. Oh, I know about I know about the book, yeah. I was just yeah. talking about that book with Scott Horton on the last episode. But this mm-hmm. author, G. Edward Griffins, he wrote a book uh, back in the late 70s, maybe early 80s. It was called The World Without Cancer. Okay. And uh, uh, he had an old video. It was like a, one of those slideshows that you see from school, uh, the, the film projector, but it was on YouTube. And uh, it was talking about how cancer uh, – Science at that point in time, you mentioned the 80s earlier, it was, you know, people had a reason to be scared of chemo. Mm -hmm. But his book talks a lot about some of the foods you can eat, like uh, vitamin B17, which was outlawed by the FDA and stuff like that. And I I find that stuff fascinating. You know, I I don't I don't know much about that that whole study, but did you get into that a lot? (laughs) Well, so one of the things that happens when you get cancer is everyone has a remedy that you should be doing that's not chemo and not radiation. Because I had a friend who told me that chemo and radiation were going to kill me and that I should be doing um, beet juice cleanses. I mean, I've heard I heard some stuff, you know, and I, I understand that people are skeptical to an extent about modern medicine. You know, I got into a fight with a a jerk on the uh, on Tom Woods's Facebook group because he told me that cancer is it's a scam. That cancer treatment is a scam, and they were all just trying to keep you sick. And I'm like, but I'm getting better. You know, it's like I and it's like, yeah, your anecdotal evidence doesn't matter. (laughs) What do you mean? My anecdotal evidence literally flies exactly in the face of what you're saying. I should be by your logic. I should either be in stasis or I should be getting worse. And the simple fact was that just from chemo and radiation, I was getting better. I went after two treatments from not being on all liquids and living on insure to eating. Let me repeat that. I went from all liquids to eating. So if they wanted to keep me sick and let me die, I'm pretty damn sure there's a more effective way to do it because it was literally going the opposite direction. But yeah, the the the, the I heard stuff about kale and spinach and stuff like that, which is funny because that's stuff I ate anyway. Um, I heard don't eat any more sugar because sugar feeds tumors. And it's like I understand there's a certain amount of – you know, things that we don't understand about the body, but there's also a certain amount of things that we do. And we do know we may not be perfect at it, but we're pretty good at treating cancer. The five-year survival rate untreated for my cancer is like 15%. But once you have the chemo, the radiation and the surgery, it's almost a hundred percent. Like modern medicine is, if modern medicine were trying to keep me sick or let me, you know, keep me sick so that the idea that I would just keep getting drugs and keep going, keep staying on chemo, I, I think they're doing a really poor job of it, (laughs) you know, I, I don't buy into I don't buy into curing things like cancer with like vitamins and diet and stuff. I, I mean, maybe. You know, as far as metastasis, I know there are certain things that you can do to slow metastasis. You can change your diet. I do know that sugar does increase. Um, I know the way that tumors met- metabolize sugar is, you know, that tends to make them grow out of control. I do know all this stuff is to be true, but I also know that cutting out sugar is not treating cancer. It's cutting out sugar, you know. Mm-hmm. It may be a component of a healthier lifestyle post-treatment, and I'm okay with that, but this whole – I don't know. I, I I'm I'm very crunchy. I wear crystals and all that stuff, and I I think there are things that we don't understand about the universe, and I'm willing to accept that there are things that I believe in God and I believe in crystals because I believe that God put crystals on this earth for us to use. Like that's the way I think about it. I think that all the stuff that's in front of us is something that God put there for us to use and enjoy and make use of, and. I just think that there's a certain amount that God put these smart people on earth to figure out how to treat cancer and just do what they say, <laughs> you know, for sure. Don't fight. Don't fight them. <laughs> they know what they're doing. For sure. Now, now you're a survivor. You get to uh, wave around a little banner everywhere you go, right? Yeah, it's it was, you know, it was funny because I, I actually um, after the not the most recent CAT scan, the one before it, when they said there was no new metastasis, which is huge news like that by itself is huge news. Um, and I, I opened up my Twitter profile and I added to the end of it. I wrote cancer survivor. And that was something I never thought like I me, I'm a cancer survivor. Like, holy crap. 
and yeah, it's it's connected me to so many people. And there have been people who got the same, like I had a friend, I was talking about it when I was on Jason Stapleton's show. Um, he got the same cancer and he died from it. And the poetic thing about it, and this is, I still get like choked up about it. I got my all clear on what would have been his birthday. Hmm. Same cancer, same treatment, same surgery. And he didn't make it. And if you ever want to be sobered up in a hurry, watch someone go through what you're going through and die from it. All of a sudden you realize like I am, we are not playing games here. <laughs> like I knew I wasn't going to die. There was a, there's a point where you kind of cross a threshold where you go, I'm going to be okay. But that point's not there the whole time. It comes eventually. But when he died, it was it really hit me hard because I was like, wow. And I was just telling him and I looked at a couple of days ago, I actually looked at the last message that I sent to him. And I I the last thing I said to him was, you're going to be OK. You're going to get through this and I'll be here for you when you're done. And he didn't make it. Yeah, and it's just it's you know, that's the realization that this is cancer. It's not a game. It's not a game. Not everyone survives. Not everyone gets to ring the bell. Some people die. As horrible as it is. Well, you were able to take that uh, that curse, you turned it into a blessing, and, and you developed a mindset that allowed you to yes. not only get over that, but uh, also be able to, in the same year, run a 5K yeah. at the end yeah. of the year. It was – so that's a fun story because I had done Couch to 5K a few times over my life. I never finished the program. Um I wanted to finish the program because I was like, this is this is doable. Like, I could do this. And I kept starting it, and I never finished it, and I really wanted to do it. Like, it was something I was driven to do. And I decided, screw this. I'm going to do it. This is going to be the year. And there's a 5K in my area every April at one of the parks. So I'm like, you know what? I'm going to set that as my goal. And I started Couch to 5K in August. And then – I got through week one without a problem because week one is pretty easy. I got to week two and the first day of week two just completely kicked my ass. And I'm like, I can't do this. And I stopped what I was doing that day. I only ran like two runs. I was like, I can't do this. I can't do this. And I sat there and I just I had a moment where I was like, no, you don't get to say you can't do this. You don't get to do that. You have to do this. So then I was like, okay. I'm doing this. I completely just reprogrammed my brain and just said, I'm going to do week one until week one is easy. And then I'm going to start doing week two. Well, I did that. And not only did I get, I did week one four times and I said, I'm going to, this is it. Now we start week two. And I did week two on the first try and I did week three. And at the end of week three, I'm like, okay, if I can get this far, this fast, there's no reason I can't just do the program now. So I looked it up and I found that there was a 5K in December. So now we're talking, I'm in mid-October. I'm like, I'm running a 5K December 8th. Like, here we go. Let's do this. And I finished Couch to 5K three days before or four days before I did an actual 5K. Hmm. And I did the 5K and, you know, I didn't run the whole thing. But I don't, you know, I don't know that that's something you can do on your first 5K. I don't know anyone that's ever done it. But I ran most of it, and I didn't finish last. And that was all I cared about is I did not want to be the last person across the finish line. I was like 47th out of 54 in my age group, and I'm perfectly fine with that. Like, I was proud of that. That was an accomplishment, you know, finishing cancer treatment. And running a 5K in the same year, like going through that, going through chemo and radiation, then surgery, then the recovery, then going through chemo again, then finishing chemo again, and then doing a 5K. Like that's a hell of a year. <laughs> that's one heck of a story. <laughs> right? <laughs> I mean, and you know, when Jason, Jason said, Jason said when I was on that, you know, I always tell him, I've told him a million times how much he's inspired me to just be a better version of myself. And when he said that I inspired him because of the way I dealt with this, and even when I was on the show, he said, you know, when I think about what I'm doing and I don't want to get up or I don't want to work hard enough, I, he said, you built a business, survived cancer, ran a 5K. What's my excuse? And that seems to resonate for people. And I've ended up 
people have told me like, yeah, you, you, you motivated me. You got me off my ass. You got me moving. You got me pushing myself a little bit. And I'm like, wow, I never wanted to be an inspiration. I never thought of being an inspiration. I, I'm usually the guy that looks up to people. I'm not the guy that's looked up to, but a lot of people have told me over the, you know, over the last couple of months that, you know, my story has changed their life. And I'm like, what <laughs> me, you know, I'm just doing what I do. But I think crazy. everybody with a story thinks the same way. Yeah, but, uh, but it's those stories that uh, I think God places in our lives to uh, to help us all out. Yeah, you know, sometimes, you know, I started I started um, last week. I started therapy because I have some issues with depression and other stuff that I need to work out. And you know, one of the things that my therapist is always just trying to drill home is that sometimes you just need to hear something. It's not even that you don't know it. You just need to hear it. Like knowing it and having someone tell you are two different things. You can internally know something. Like you can know the voice in the back of your head that tells you you're worthless and you're a piece of garbage and you're never going to amount to anything. You can know that that voice is full of it. But at the same time, someone telling you that you have value is worth so much more than you trying to talk down that voice in the back of your head that's saying horrible things. And she's always, you know, one of her big things is you don't always need, you always, almost always know what you're, what you need to hear and you know the right answers, but you telling yourself isn't as powerful as other people telling you. And when you see people getting through these stories and people surviving crazy adversity, Jason had the, I, again, I'm going to forget her name. I'm so embarrassed. I keep forgetting her name. But when he had the UCLA gymnastics coach on, um, her story inspired the hell out of me because I was going through it at that point. And when she, you know, her quote of be anxious for nothing, be grateful for all things. I, that was how I was already kind of programmed, but hearing it in such a concise way just made me go, yes, that is my new motto. Be anxious for nothing. Be grateful for all things. Don't get stressed out over things. Be happy for what you have. You know, don't be stressed that you have cancer. Be grateful that some of the best cancer care you can get is walking distance from your house. You know, don't be stressed that you have to have surgery. Be grateful that one of the best surgeons in the country is going to do it on you in one of the best hospitals in the country. You know, and it just, it's a mindset shift, right? Because you go into it thinking, this is all going to go wrong. This could go wrong at any moment. But your mindset, if you're in the right mindset, you're going, yeah, but could also go really, really right. You know, one of my favorite makers, Jimmy Daresta, always says, everyone worries about what could go wrong. What if everything goes wrong? What if everything goes wrong? Well, what if everything goes right? You know, what if what if things turn out okay? Like what then, you know? You don't have to always program yourself to be prepared for everything to explode. Sometimes sometimes things happen and they go well. <laughs> Right. Along the same mindset about uh, instead of asking what could go wrong, asking what can go right, mm -hmm. uh, a lot of people say to themselves, I can't do this. I can't do that. Right. And I always say, well, instead of asking yourself why you can't do it, ask yourself, how can you do it? It's, right. it's, that, it's a shift of words that creates the positivity that uh, builds momentum. Totally. For me, it's for me, it's become for me, it's a similar mindset of not so much why it's more why aren't you? Right. So one of the things that happened in the midst of all this cancer stuff was I started my business. Um, I started a little business making woodworking stuff. It started as just woodworking and 3D printing. It's expanded into jewelry, which jewelry has really become what I do the most of, even though woodworking probably makes me more money. But, you know, I started this business in the midst of it. And I wanted to, right? At one point, I just like, I really want to turn this into something. I want to start this. I want to make this a business. And in the back of my mind, it's like, you, you're not in a position to do that. And that's when the voice comes in and goes, well, why aren't you in that position? Why can't you do this, right? And there are no good answers. You sit there and you'll talk yourself out of doing something. And then when you really push yourself and you go, well, why can't I do that? Well, there's no reason. There's literally no reason. It, there is no reason you can't start a business. None. None. There is no valid reason for you to not start a business. You can start a business today doing anything you want to do if you want to do it enough. I, I could start a business making custom things out of wood and making jewelry while I'm going through cancer treatment. If I can do that, there is no reason in hell that you 
average listener listening to this podcast can't say, I want to make this thing and start making that thing or selling this information or taking that special skill you have and teaching other people how to do it. There's no reason in hell that you can't do it. And the question shouldn't be why aren't you necessarily, but maybe why can't you? And ask yourself that question legitimately. Say, why can't I start a business? And listen to the dumb answers you give yourself and go, no, that, that doesn't make sense. Of course, that's not a valid answer. Why, what am I doing? If I want to do this bad enough, I'll do it. I'll get it done. And that's the motivator, right? That's where it comes from. It comes from you going, no, I really want to do this and just overriding your internal doubts, and just doing it. And I'm not going to sit here and pretend I'm making millions of dollars, but I have money that I didn't have before my business. And it's nice. <laughs> it's nice. Right. I, I think that question becomes a lot easier when you already discovered that you have a skill set. Like I'm a pretty handy guy, but I, I can't do carpentry work. I, I've never really <laughs> been very good at that. However, uh, I'm fascinated. Actually, my, my brother-in-law, uh, in fact, my wife's whole family, they're all ex-carpenters and, and, and work workers. And my brother-in-law made a bunch of furniture that we have in our house. I'm like, mm-hmm. can you get him to make me another table? We really want a table <laughs> at that. <laughs> so, I, I can't do that. It's really – I'm going to be dead honest with you though. So I didn't have this skill set. This isn't a skill – so my father was a formally trained carpenter, right? He was a formally trained, went to carpentry school, apprenticed, got a job. He's an, uh, he was an amazing carpenter, like one of those guys that you could show him a picture of something and he would make it for you. Like he didn't need he didn't need plans. My father rarely ever drew anything beyond a basic sketch where he wrote measurements. I didn't pick up that skill. My skill was music and computers and photography and art stuff and writing. And one day, I just got the bug up my butt. I'm like, I'm going to learn woodworking. And I took a course from a YouTube guy named Steve Ramsey, who's probably one of the most popular. He's old school woodworker guy on, on YouTube. And I took his course. I didn't finish his course. And I, when I had him on my podcast, I said, I just want you to know, Steve, I'm kind of embarrassed about this. I didn't finish your course. And he goes, really? I said, yeah. He goes, well, is there any particular reason you didn't finish the course? I said, yeah, I had to start my woodworking business. <laughs> you know, I, I started this course knowing nothing and I finished – I didn't even finish the course because I had to get to work. Like I had to start my woodworking business and I have a woodworking business now. You know, But I didn't have that skill two years ago. Like I didn't have it. I just – it wasn't a skill that I had. It was a skill that I just decided one day I wanted to learn and I learned it and I learned it reasonably well. I make pretty nice stuff now. But you know that when I when people say they can't do something, right, I, I could have said at the beginning like, you want, I want to be a woodworker. I can't. But why can't I? Well, you can't because you don't know how, right? OK, so I don't know how. So how do I learn how to be a woodworker? Well, it just so happens that one of my favorite YouTubers decided he was going to start a course. I'm taking that damn course. And now I'm a woodworker. Right. Like it's, you know, that Jason always talks about how the information's out there. You just got to go get it. You know, it's not going to come to you. You have to go get it. So go get it. Go get it. Learn what you want to do. There's easy ways. There's free ways. There's non-free ways that are outstanding now. I learned software that I use almost in every design, I use a piece of software called Fusion 360. It's th- it's 3D CAD software, okay? It is super expensive. It's super powerful. It can do everything you'll ever need to do. You know how I learned it? On Skillshare. <laughs> so it's like I didn't have someone come to my house. I didn't take a class. I had a guy on Skillshare had a an eight-part class. By the time I was done with that class, I was like, oh, that's everything. I'm good. I know everything I need to know. And now I do like what I call continuing education as I watch other people who use the same software. I learn from them. But I have a good basis now because of the internet. So there's no excuse to not have the knowledge. The excuses are justifications for your laziness more than they are actual reasons for you not to learn something at this point. Right. One of my mentors, he's a... I'll tell you this whole story because it's pretty funny. So one of my mentors is like all of five two, five three. Really, he's kind of a shorter guy, mm-hmm. and he he'll say all the time. He's like he says skills are learnable, talents are not. And, mm. and his example is of a talent that's not learnable is he's like I'll never be able to dunk a basketball on a professional size <laughs> basketball because he's five foot you know something. Right. <laughs> he's like, but I can learn anything. And, right. you know, and so, you know, we learn salesmanship skills, we learn marketing skills, and, and you can learn more tangible, tangible physical skills. 
Yeah, I that's a crazy that's a great quote because that really is the truth. You can't learn talent. You but you can learn a skill. You can learn a skill. If I can learn how to do woodwork, you can pretty much learn how to do anything cuz I as far as the physical skills like of like those arts, I am terrible. I am terrible. I have a good eye, but I don't have great hands. So, it doesn't always translate, but I've developed them. You know, I've practiced. I've gotten better. I found the other day, I found a piece that I made, um, a piece of jewelry I made when I first started making jewelry. And I looked at it and I was like, oh, this is hideous. Like I could see every flaw in it. Like I would never, never, ever, ever sell that to a customer now. But when I was done with it then, I was super proud of it because it was early on. And when you see the evolution of your work, you realize that your skills aren't finite. They're always improving. And the more you do something, the better it gets. And it's it's important. It's important to recognize that you may not start out great, but you will get better at stuff if you stick to it. Right. Now, Vincent, do you have anything on YouTube as far as some of the things you've made? Or is it just the podcast you talk about? So I do. I've started I, I just did a Tonka truck restoration and I did put that on YouTube because I wanted to have a presence on YouTube, but really my main social network, um, as far as promoting my stuff is Instagram. Like I get a lot of engagement on Instagram. I really do. I really love Instagram. I like how positive it is and I like how it's a visual medium. And for people in my space, in the maker space, that really is like the top medium for them. They, they spend more time on Instagram than anything else. And then, yeah, the podcast also is a good way. You know, it's funny because the podcast was really just a way for me to get my name out there and connect to people in my space. And that's exactly what's happened. Like we started awarding a couple of weeks ago, we started awarding the video of the week, right? Ethan and I, Ethan, my co-host and I, we completely made this up. It was like we came up – we usually do things of the week every week. It's basically whatever we want it to be. It's something we really enjoyed that particular week. And Ethan and I were coming up two weeks in a row, three weeks in a row really. We came up with the same video that we both wanted to use. I said, I got an idea. Why don't we just start calling it the video of the week? We'll make it a big deal. We'll like award the video of the week. And it's like, OK, cool. Yeah, let's do that. So we we came up with this idea of video of the week and we started awarding it. We made a big deal. And when I award video of the week, I promoted in my Instagram stories and on Twitter. And guess what happened? People start like being honored by it. Now, I'm not saying don't be honored by it, right? I'm just saying that we created this. Like this was just – we're a small podcast. We have a couple hundred listeners a week. We're not a big podcast by any stretch. But we do get A-list talent on the show whenever we want it basically. And now we've created an award where we give it to people and they actually feel honored by it. It's, you know, it's kind of cool and it's a way to build. It's a great way to build your brand and build your name recognition and create connections with people you otherwise don't have. I'm friends with every single person that's been on my podcast. When it started out, it was, they were just people that were guests. And now they're like, I would consider, they at least know who I am. They check in with me. They say, hi, you know, these are people that I looked up to. And now we have conversations like peers, you know. I'm not doing as much making as they are in the different social media, but what I am doing is I'm promoting the movement and I'm promoting them as part of the movement. And it's a great thing for your brand. It's wonderful. Yeah, you just uh, you're you riding a ship and, and setting sail and moving forward. Yeah, I, I was asking about uh, videos because one of the videos, one of the student, one of the podcasts I listened to you from your show, you were talking about uh, this guy, the Maker Monster. Yes. And uh, yes. I, I love that. Well, I ended up showing my daughter. My daughter found this thing on YouTube. It's, it's this, this girl who makes little squishy toys, and she mm -hmm. she paints them and glues them together. I like know. That. I actually know who you're talking about. I forgot her name is Marion is her name? Something is like it? that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I know exactly who you're talking about because she's known for doing squishies. That's what she's known for. And so uh, my daughter loves that show. She'll sit there and watch it for hours and she mm -hmm. just cracks up. And, you know, it's a, it's a good kid show, but my daughter is very artistic. And uh, then I, I heard about the Maker Monster and I, and I turned her on to that guy. And he, she's like watching that on YouTube. I'm like, that's cool. He's phenomenal. He's one of the – so it was really funny. My first interaction with him was on the – one of the groups that we're both on and I was like somebody posted his video and I was like that mask is really really creepy and his answer to me was 
what mask? And I was like, oh, I love this guy. Like, he's going to pretend, all right, that's his shtick. This isn't a mask. He's really a monster. Okay, I get it. And ever since then, I've just been a huge fan of his because I just, he's, and he's a super nice guy. He's got a great mindset and he just likes having fun in his shop. And it's just fantastic. Like, there's so many good people in this space that I'm in. And I'm honored that some people treat me like a peer in that space because this was the space I wanted to be in and now I'm in it. You know, one of the things that happened was I wanted – when I imagined the maker community and what I would be a part of with that, it was always I'm going to do this and I'm going to hang out with all the really well-known makers and YouTubers and we're just going to have a great time and whatever – what I didn't expect to happen is I would have a community, but it would be a community of people that I've kind of built. You know, it's people that maybe aren't like, and I don't want to insult anyone, but, you know, we're not talking, you know, people with 2 million subscribers. We're talking people with 100,000 subscribers. But these are the people that these are like my people. And what, what Ethan and I are finding, and we just got a message today from somebody. He's like, what I love about you guys is you're just like an average perspective on our movement. You're not like these super rich guys with gigantic shops and everything. You know, we're just regular guys who love going down to our shop and making cool stuff. And it's like, wow, we're, we gave voice to people that felt like they weren't being represented. We didn't do that intentionally. That wasn't what my, my intention for the podcast was to have those 2 million people on and do like behind the music for makers. That was my intention. What ended up happening was Ethan and I, who Ethan was actually one of my guests, um, we ended up becoming friends and we ended up doing a completely different show from the original plan. It wasn't the plan. What would, what the show is now is nowhere near what it was on episode one. It's completely different. And I think about that all the time. Like imagine, you know, we pivoted without even really trying to pivot. It's just – it's a completely new direction that ended up creating – it rallied people around us and made our audience more engaged because instead of talking – Hey, we're telling you the story of this guy. It's like, hey, we're telling you our story, and we're bringing you into it. It's it's so much fun. I love podcasting. Yeah, I love. Podcasting. I was gonna say, not only are you in the maker space, but you are in the podcasting space, and mm -hmm. and of course the I'm gonna call it the Invictus space. <laughs> it's uh, yeah. No, it's podcast. I'm sorry. Podcasting is great because in just a short time I started doing this. I'm kicking myself for not doing this years ago. I actually went to school for this kind of thing. Back really? In, back in the yeah before. Well, my career. Real long story short, I, I started a multimedia production uh, back in the year 2000. Mm -hmm. Ended up getting into heating and air conditioning, and now I'm in finance. So my career has like gone so many directions, and now I'm kind of slowly going back into where I really wanted to, you know, what I was going to school for. And you meet so many great people, and it's so easy to just ask somebody, hey, you know, let's talk and let's record it because people actually want to listen to this. So, so it's really funny. I started doing podcasts in 2006. It was the first podcast that I did. And my, me and my friend Chris um, and my friend Michael, we started a network of podcasts. So just to give you an idea of what we were doing, we were getting 250,000 downloads on seven podcasts every week. We had a podcast going every single night. It was We had seven or eight shows, different people doing them, and they would just go and we would post them and they would all be under the same banner. And we were, and I, I he and I will argue this till the end of the earth, but we are and we were the first live podcast. We had a sports podcast called Nosebleed, which was supposed to be sports from the cheap seats. It was basically fan sports. It wasn't like super analytical like sports sports radio sports mm -hmm. it was your average guys talking about sports not not your super informed you know i was just wondering you know i was gonna propose a trade okay here we're gonna propose. no shut up nobody wants to hear that so we started that podcast and he came up with a way and he's a really he's a really smart dude in fact that's who i'm going to see in vegas tomorrow um he's a really smart dude and he's like hey if we wired things up this way we could take live calls on skype on this podcast and stream it live. And I'm like, you think like streaming it live? Like, what are you talking about? And he came up with this whole rig in his office where we were streaming every Thursday night and taking phone calls. It was like, that was unheard of in two, it was like 2007 ish. We were doing this. 
and we were just it was massive we were just gigantic 250,000 downloads over seven shows you know so figure 40,000 downloads of each show we were huge we were the the funny thing is that we didn't break up because it wasn't working. We broke up because him and I had a massive fight, and I just told him, take the whole damn thing. I don't want anything to do with it anymore. And then it eventually just shut down. And it's kind of sad because had we kept that going, I always think, like, what would have happened if we kept that going? It, it, it It's amazing what we could have accomplished. But we were doing that at the at the beginning of podcasting. So I've been in podcasting for a really long time. I love doing it. I've, I'm a radio guy. I love radio. So doing podcasts was just my way of being able to do radio. <laughs> so. Right, right. Have you ever caught up with that guy? Yeah, so well, we are so we are actually hanging out this weekend. I'm going to meet him out in Vegas. Oh, that's what you said. I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, it's fine. Um yeah, so we actually we didn't talk. <laughs> we didn't talk for probably about 5 years. And at one point, I was just like, this is stupid. Why aren't we talking? So I just one day I messaged him. I was like, hey, man, just check it in. We haven't spoken in a while. I just wanted to see how you were doing. And we started talking, and it was like, hey, what would happen? What do you think about doing a show? And he's like, I'm listening. So we started talking, and we batted around, and we did about 100 episodes of a podcast together. And we just kind of put it to bed after that because i'll tell you the, the god's honest truth the politics was just it was really starting to make me mentally ill i'm not i'm not even remotely exaggerating i was stressed out i was on the verge of a nervous breakdown every single day and it's funny because right around the time that we decided we weren't going to do politics anymore was when jason started angling towards not doing politics anymore and it was like okay it's not just me you know i i can't do i can talk about this stuff like i can talk about liberty with anyone but i don't i just don't want to anymore you know and when jason started talking about stop talking about the government and what's going on in dc and start focusing on what moves the needle and what makes your life better and to make yourself recession proof and raise your human capital and all those things spoke to me and i was like that's what i need to be doing i don't need to be focusing on politics and the wars in the middle east and you know to 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 everyone their own right i don't fault like someone like scott horton whose life has whose life's work revolves around war and peace we need people like him i'm not that person i'm not that person i'm more of what matt what matt said and damn matt for being brilliant right <laughs> um and by the way if you ever think you ever want to know how brilliant matt is do what i did have lunch with him and amy and just talk to them for three or four hours like I did. And you realize Matt is one of the smartest people on this planet. And talking to him was just incredible. One of the things he said right before I was on Jason's show is he said, liberty is fine, but you want to, you always want to be trying to accumulate wealth and influence and power. He said, and the reason is wealth is the practical application of liberty. Wealth enables you to have liberty in a way that nothing else does. You have a freedom of movement. You are recession-proof. You are government-proof. If you, you have enough money where when everything goes south, you can leave the country. You have a level of liberty that people cannot comprehend and most people don't have. You know, it's not just a lot of people have turned on Jason's show because he's not talking about the nitty gritty of D.C. politics anymore. But what they don't realize is that that doesn't matter. What matters is how ready you are for when everything hits the fan. And most people don't have a thousand dollars in their bank account. You know, you couldn't leave if you wanted to. If everything if everything went south. Most people would have to stay put and hope for the best. That's not liberty. That's not liberty. That's that's a that's you're trapped. And as long as you're trapped, you're not free. <laughs> 
Vincent, I, uh, that's a great thought. Uh, yeah, I'm going to wrap it up uh, with that thought. I, I jokingly tell myself that if Jason Stapleton never came around, that's who I would evolve into. I have yeah. I have somewhat of a similar background, although not the military experience that he has, but uh, just my background in finance. And my mentor would say the same thing that uh, Jason says, is with more wealth, you have more liberty. And, and yeah. that's, that's really the direction of this show. So, uh, you know, being Invictus encompasses all of that. Being, oh, yes, un- being unconquerable financially, being unconquerable physically with our bodies, and being unconquerable mentally. Mm-hmm. It's nice to say, you know, it's nice to say we're free people with free minds, but it, it, you could have a free mind and still be trapped because you don't have any income to get or wealth to get you out of a bad situation. The practical application of liberty is seeking wealth, power, and influence. And the wealth, power, and influence is what comes and what gives you the ability to be free. You are not free without those three things. You're just not. You have a modicum of freedom, but you don't have total freedom until you have all three of those things, as much of it as you can, as ethically as you can acquire it. (laughs) I love it. Well, hey, good luck on your trip to uh, Vegas. That sounds like a lot of fun. Uh, I can't wait. (laughs) I I look forward to uh, getting the feedback about this show when when I put it on the winner's uh, list. (laughs) It's going to be interesting. I have followed up some true giants, so I hope I didn't disappoint anybody. (laughs) No, you are are great. You're you're exactly the kind of person that uh, not only needs to hear my show but needs to talk on my show more often. So I want to thank thank you, you. Vincent. (laughs) Oh, thank, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. All right. It's been fun. You take care, buddy. We'll connect soon, okay? Definitely. I want to thank Vincent Ferrari for appearing on my show. Thanks for all you great listeners out there. And remember to check out TheInvictusMind.com. You can also find us on Spotify, on iTunes, and on Stitcher Radio. That's it. Until next time, peace.